I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. On Sunday, Brazilians head to the polls for the first round of voting in their presidential election. Former President Lula da Silva is surging in the polls, climbing over the 50% he would need for a knockout first round win. If those polls are accurate, He's likely to do significantly better than that even because a significant portion of voters remain undecided. And if they break his way or some portion of them break his way, he could even crack 60 percent. Incumbent President Jair Bolsonaro, who styles himself the Donald Trump of Brazil, has signaled that he won't respect the result like that, arguing the polls are wrong and the election is being stolen. The Biden administration, however, has sent signals it plans to recognize the results of the election, putting the U.S. in a totally novel situation, working to prevent a right-wing coup in South America. Weird times. In Europe this week, the fascist-adjacent Georgia Maloney won the Italian election for prime minister, which came a few weeks after a surging right-wing took power in Sweden. All of this while a massive attack on the Nord Stream pipeline has led to global finger-pointing ahead of what could be one of the most pivotal winters in Europe in half a century or more. To sort through all this, I'll be joined first by Art Goldhammer, one of the leading translators of French work into English, including his work on the seminal translation of Thomas Piketty's book Capital in the 21st Century. After that, I'll speak with Brazilian sociologist Sabrina Fernandez, who often tweets in English at the handle at S-A-F-B-F. That's at S-A-F-B-F. But first, on Italy and all things Europe, I'm joined now by Arthur Goldhammer. Arthur Goldhammer, welcome to Deconstructed. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So before we get into Italy or Sweden or, or the rest of the politics of Europe, I'm, recently we're recording this on Wednesday. Uh, there was the either sabotage or explosions around the Nord Stream uh, pipeline or, or the huge news. There's already you know wild speculation that Ukraine did this, that Russia did this, that the United States was responsible for this. We're, we may never get to the bottom of, of what happened, but who people are speculating may have been responsible and why, I think, tells us something about the way that people are viewing the crisis and, and the politics. What, what, what is the reaction to this so far? And how, how significant is this going to be for winter and energy prices? Well, I don't think it will have uh, particular significance for energy prices because uh, the pipeline was already cut off and no longer supplying uh, gas to Europe. Uh, it is being seen, however, in European capitals as a warning shot that the entire European gas infrastructure is vulnerable. Obviously, if this uh, deep sea pipeline could be blown up, then uh, other pipelines supplying gas to Europe are also vulnerable. The accusations flying back and forth depend on which side the accuser is on vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Ukraine war. Clearly, those uh, who favor Ukraine uh, are quick to blame Russia. Others uh, on the Russian side uh, tend to blame Ukraine. Ukraine has never been happy with the uh, Nord Stream uh, pipelines uh, supplying gas to Germany from Russia. But uh, uh, it would be pure speculation on my part to uh, offer an opinion. Right. I have no idea who did it. 
What is the latest on the energy situation there? How, how prepared in general is Western Europe for this winter? Well, uh, the short answer is that Western Europe is not prepared. Uh, the longer answer is that it's a bit better prepared than uh, many had feared back in February when the war in Ukraine started. Germany has sought and found some uh, alternative sources of gas and uh, some months ago began filling its storage facilities. Those are now, uh, at last report, over 90% full. By now, they may be uh, 100% full. So uh, Germany is somewhat better prepared than uh, people had feared. However, even with uh, 100% storage uh, capacity filled, that amount will last uh, for less than two months uh, in an average winter. If it's a particularly cold winter, uh, the gas will run out before then. The German government has already taken steps to uh, request uh, industries that are heavy gas users to moderate their usage and to request uh, uh, ordinary citizens to take cold showers, uh, reduce their heat, and so on. And all across Europe, uh, governments are asking citizens to raise their heat no higher than 67.5 degrees Fahrenheit uh, during the winter. So uh, Europeans are taking precautions, but uh, a lot depends on the weather. So there's major uncertainty there. And then if there are, should be attacks on uh, gas and oil pipelines, uh, all bets are off. Europe could be plunged into uh, total chaos. And Putin's political calculation, everybody seems to say, is that this type of energy crisis is going to cause political unrest, which then redounds toward the benefit of European right-wing parties that, that are more sympathetic to Russia. Uh, are, are you starting to see significant protests? Is that panning out for Putin? Uh, No, I think it is not at this point. Uh, The pain has not been felt uh, by ordinary citizens except uh, at the gas pump and in their electric bills. And so far, they're willing to bear that pain uh, in solidarity with with Ukraine, which enjoys uh, a fairly substantial support across Europe. In Italy, where, uh, as you know, uh, a far-right government uh, was just elected on Sunday, the leader of that new government, the likely leader, Georgia Maloney, is surprisingly uh, staunchly pro-Ukraine. So if Putin's calculation was uh, that the precipitating a crisis over Ukraine would uh, drive the far right into uh, overt pro-Russian stance, it looks like it's not going to pan out. Of course, that could all change uh, if things get really bad during the winter. People are willing to pay higher gas prices. It's not clear how willing they'll be to uh, uh, freeze to death or, uh, (laughs) you know, suffer substantial discomfort during the winter. Uh, But all that is uh, still speculative. So where did Maloney draw her support? Well, in the four years since the last election, she's been steadily increasing her support. Essentially, it came from the other two right-wing parties, which will now be her coalition partners, the uh, so-called Lega or League, uh, which used to be the uh, Lombard League and then the uh, Northern League, led by Matteo Salvini, and Berlusconi's uh, party, uh, Forza Italia, which has been declining for a number of years. The overall total of votes for right-wing parties did not increase, uh, but Maloney increased her share of that vote from uh, about 4.4% in 2018 to uh, over 27% this year. So uh, a substantial uh, increase in her vote, which has come about because uh, she's not only uh, 
taken a strong anti-immigration stance, which uh, Matteo Salvini also did, but took a very strong uh, pro-family, uh, anti-abortion, anti-homosexual, anti-gay rights, uh, anti-gender uh, transformation, uh, what have you, very uh, right-wing position on uh, a whole range of social issues, uh, which uh, seem to have uh, uh, appealed to the electorate. On the left, Enrico Letta refused to enter into an alliance with uh, what's called the Five Star Movement, which was founded by a TV comedian named Beppe Grillo many years ago. But the movement uh, since then passed into the uh, hands of uh, Giuseppe Conti, who was prime minister before Mario Draghi, the outgoing prime minister. The uh, a decision by Conte to uh, withdraw his support from the uh, pro-Draghi coalition, which included all the parties except Maloney's, led to a split on the left. Enrico Letta refused to uh, ally his Social Democratic Party, which is called the uh, Partido Democratico, or Democratic Party, with the Five Star Movement, which itself had had an internal factional split. I don't know how much in detail you want to go into Italian politics, which is always uh, uh, comically factionalized. Comically factional, but I'm curious who the constituencies of these of these factions are to see if we can draw any kind of transnational uh, parallels to them. Because my it, my understanding, Letta would be more of a kind of social democratic with upper middle class kind of technocratic professionals. Is that is is that accurate? And the Five Star Movement is trying to appeal to working class people through kind of material concerns rather than the cultural ones. Is that generally right? Yes, you're generally right. Uh, let let this party certainly is a social democratic party which appeals to uh, the uh, professional classes. Letta himself is a technocrat, and uh, uh, Mario Draghi is a technocrat, former head of the European Central Bank. So that's the social base of that party. The Five Star Movement is a little bit uh, more diverse. It's, uh, it was founded as an anti-elitist party whose uh, motto was throw the bums out, uh, the bums being both of the right and the left. But it uh, became a party of government under Giuseppe Conte, uh, and therefore uh, joined the ranks of the bums. Hmm. Uh, Luigi Di Maio is a little bit more left-leaning than Conte was, and uh, his faction of the uh, uh, Five Star Movement would have been more compatible with Letta. It was uh, pro-Draghi, unlike Conte. It was Conte's decision to uh, withdraw his support from uh, Draghi and from the technocrats. So that move alienated uh, his party from the uh, professional classes. And uh, Letta's uh, decision to seek an alliance on the left ended any uh, chance of a, a further coalition, which was dangled for a while with Matteo Renzi, who had been uh, a prime minister from the Democratic Party, but split with his party and tried to forge an alliance with the centrists who were dissidents from Berlusconi's party. Right. Uh, so uh, before we get into a much more Byzantine description, uh, that's what's happened. Uh, on the right, the, the story is much simpler. It's uh, The appeal is uh, largely to the working class, which has become strongly anti-immigrant uh, and strong, much more strongly than in the past traditionalist. The uh, secularizing influence of the Italian Communist Party, which was very strong in the uh, 1960s and 70s has entirely waned, and much of the uh, 
uh, working class in Italy has reverted to more conservative social positions. And so you had two factions vying for, for working class support. You had the you had the Five Star Movement, with, which when, when they were in power, you know, in, implemented some version of universal basic income, you know, trying to very much appeal directly to workers' interests. And then you have Maloney appealing to their cultural grievances. So it, it seems like she did better, like she drew a lot more working class people. How, how much better did she do? In other words, how much more excited were these working class Italians to vote with their cultural values rather than their material values? Uh, well, she drew uh, approximately three times the vote uh, of uh, Conte's party. Okay. Conte, however, was uh, particularly strong in the South, uh, where there are a lot of working poor. And the fact that his party had implemented what's called uh, the citizen's income, which, as you say, is a kind of uh, universal basic income, appealed to those voters. So uh, there was actually a surge of the uh, five-star movement in the South. They did better than they had done in the past. And uh, th that uh, represents a, a certain change. Uh, on the other hand, Maloney's appeal to the more conservative parts of the working class, the more traditionalist, more Catholic uh, parts of the working class, particularly in northern Italy, put her over the top and led to her party's uh, best results uh, in its history. And Jonathan Smucker, who's a, a guest we've had on here before, kind of an American author and, and political strategist, has a term that he calls kind of the margin of maneuver. His argument was, say, in the 2020 Democratic primary, that the Sanders wing of the party had gotten to within the margin of maneuver. They, they, they were outmaneuvered by Obama, Biden, Buttigieg, Klobuchar, Clyburn, everybody kind of coming together at the end and outmaneuvering him at the end, rather than at a massive kind of structural social structural deficit. Uh, and so I'm curious if if the Italian kind of center left and left was within the margin of maneuver in this election and, and if they had made different tactical decisions could have prevailed or if just structurally they were swamped by these cultural forces that you're describing. Uh, well, th that's a difficult question to answer. I think they were within uh, a margin of maneuver, but uh, even if they had made different tactical choices, it probably would have not have been enough to overcome the structural uh, uh, advantage of the right. Uh, there are certainly many on the left in Italy who think that Letta make, made the wrong choices. And in fact, uh, he immediately drew that conclusion himself and mm -hmm. uh, took himself out of the running for uh, uh, the future uh, chairmanship of his party. So there will be other people now vying for that position who will be willing and will run on the basis of their willingness to consider uh, new coalitions, particularly with the Five Star Movement uh, and with the Italian Greens. I think what changed uh, on the right uh, was an expansion of the margin for maneuver Maloney had been limited in the past by her descent. Her party, uh, which is called the uh, Brothers of Italy, is descended from a, an earlier party called the Italian Social Movement, which itself uh, was uh, descended from uh, the fascist party of uh, Benito Mussolini. So many workers who considered themselves anti-fascist would not consider a vote for the Brothers of Italy uh, until recently. But after 2018, Things changed in that respect. Uh, Maloney uh, dissociated herself from Mussolini, whom she had praised in the past. She changed her position on Europe. She had been anti-European, but became pro-EU. 
became an Atlanticist and denied any affinity at all with Putin's Russia, which became a, a particular point of pride for her after the uh, war in Ukraine began last February. So she increased her margin for maneuver and began to take more and more votes away from uh, Salvini, who had been the uh, the rising power on the right as Berlusconi, who is now uh, in his late 80s, faded uh, from his uh, once dominant position as the uh, uncontested champion of the right. So I think uh, the story is that uh, th there may have been a larger margin for maneuver on the left than Letta was able to uh, recognize, uh, but uh, Maloney expanded her margin for maneuver on the right. Uh, and that's the uh, story of how the election was won. And so was the, I don't know what you would call them, neo-fascist or, or hard right or populist hard right, whatever term you would use, like were they, were they being held back in recent years by kind of an anti-EU sentiment and a pro-Russian sentiment that wasn't appeal, that was kind of uh, getting in the way of winning significant working class support and now shed of that, their basic principles are pretty attractive uh, to people without this, these kind of whatever nationalist implications you you draw from the, you know, it's not nationalist because it's pro-EU, but you know what I mean? Well, uh, I think the Russian issue was not so prominent uh, until this year. Uh, what really dominated uh, Italian politics vis-a-vis uh, -vis the EU uh, in previous years was the fact that Italy was a kind of ward of the EU it's very high level of debt, uh, I think uh, close to 180% of GDP, uh, made it uh, beholden to uh, decisions of the European Central Bank. There were several occasions uh, on which the European Central Bank essentially dictated a change of government in Italy. Berlusconi was replaced by Mario Monti uh, back in the uh, uh, early 2000s, for example, because uh, Berlusconi was unwilling to fulfill the conditions uh, imposed by the European Central Bank for uh, support of Italian debt. So a technocratic government led by Mario Monti, who uh, had the seal of approval of the European Central Bank, was put in. Uh, more recently, Mario Draghi replaced Giuseppe Conte under similar conditions. Uh, the uh, EU, as a condition of... Uh, uh, COVID aid uh, wanted a more technocratic government, more willing to implement uh, stringent economic reforms. And uh, Draghi had done to do that. The paradox is that uh, his reform moves were actually quite popular and enjoyed the support across the political spectrum. But for reasons of internal jockeying, uh, Conte and the Five Star Movement decided that uh, they no longer wanted to put up with the Draghi government. The uh, polls were indicating that the right wing uh, had a, a chance to win uh, until recently. That was not the case. And so the right wing was willing to go along with Draghi. But when it saw that it might, uh, according to the polls, have a chance to take over the government, then it uh, uh, capitalized on the opportunity provided by Conte's decision uh, to back out of the uh, mm -hmm. uh, pro-Draghi coalition and go for a new election. And uh, that paid off with the election of Maloney. And how does Sweden fit into this? A, cu a couple of weeks ago, you had a surge of the right there, and what parliamentary elections? Is it is that a, something completely different? What or is this part of a wave that you're seeing? 
well, uh, I know far less about uh, Sweden uh, than I do about Italy or France, so uh, I'll preface my remarks with that. <laughs> there is the obvious commonality between the two situations that anti-immigrant uh, parties and anti-immigrant politics uh, are now front and center in the governing coalitions. In both countries, uh, you have a coalition which includes far-right parties and less far-right parties, although in the case of Italy, uh, there's been a kind of uh, creeping of the uh, uh, boundary between the center-right and the far-right. When Berlusconi first came to power, he was considered far-right, but now he's considered uh, hmm. uh, quite centrist. Uh, that and sounds Bologna. familiar as an American. Yeah, it, it does. Uh, uh, and there are lots of similarities with the American situation, but it would probably take us too far afield to go into those. Uh, but so I think the the main uh, difference is that, uh, uh, or the main similarity between Italy and Sweden is the uh, dominance of anti-immigrant politics. Uh, in Sweden, however, uh, the uh, immigration problem is uh, far less severe than it is in Italy. Italy is. Uh, what the Europeans call a frontline state. That is, uh, it's a state that receives uh, immigrants coming directly from Africa on uh, rafts. The island of Lampedusa is uh, only a few miles from Libya, and uh, that's become a major immigration route. So uh, there are large numbers of immig immigrants piling up in uh, Italy. And uh, under EU law, the state in which uh, an immigrant arrives is responsible for their ultimate dis disposition. So Italy has been under tremendous pressure and has been uh, urging the EU to try to alleviate this pressure, but it's very difficult to get other countries to take immigrants uh, that uh, Italy wants to get rid of. So uh, Italy has uh, been having to cope with this for more than a decade now, and uh, that has steadily strengthened the hand of uh, anti-immigration parties, which include all three parties of, of the right now in the uh, what will be the uh, governing coalition. And, and last question, what, what is the sense among Europeans of how the Russian war in Ukraine ends? Like, is, is there any, is there just, a, is there a sense that this is going on for the foreseeable future? Or is there an idea that there's some jockeying going on ahead of negotiations that, that could potentially end this over the winter? Or where, where, are, where are people's minds around this this war um yes well i wish i knew the answer to that question uh for the moment everyone is making public statements in support of ukraine i mean uh, i shouldn't say everyone but the the vast majority of europeans uh both ordinary citizens leaders uh industrial government leaders industrial leaders and so on uh are emphasizing their support for ukraine as uh a defense of democracy and defense of the West. However, uh, within that uh, facade of unity, uh, there are certainly underlying differences, uh, particularly among industrial leaders who are becoming increasingly worried about the uh, threat to uh, the European economy and to their own companies of uh, continued high energy prices. There are a number of companies in across Europe that are particularly energy intensive, uh, which have had to lay off workers and begun to curtail pr production. The New York Times last week had an article on this, uh, which uh, featured a, a glass factory in France, uh, which is the largest uh, producer of drinking glasses around the world, mm. uh, which uh, has had to curtail its uh, production by 50% and laid off something like 3,000 workers. 
other uh, industrial leaders have been less outspoken about this, but uh, it's known uh, that within Germany, for example, there are uh, quite a number of companies that are dependent uh, for their competitive position on cheap Russian gas and would like to see this war end as soon as possible. That said, it's hard to envision any endgame to this war that will lead to a restoration of cheap Russian gas uh, uh, on the terms that it was provided uh, prior to the war. Europe is going to have to reorient itself for defensive reasons uh, toward developing new sources of energy, but that takes time. What the interim solution will be is not clear to anyone, and uh, what the end game will be is not clear to anyone. Uh, it would take a mind reader to understand what Putin's ultimate conditions might be. But I think it's fair to say that there are many in uh, Europe who think that this winter will be a crucial test if the Ukrainians continue to make gains and if Russia does not retaliate in some of the more frightening ways that it's threatened to retaliate, uh, then uh, a negotiated solution is perhaps within sight. So this winter will probably change people's minds and begin to lead to some more open uh, statements of how people would like to see the war end. It's premature for that at this moment, however. Arthur Goldhammer, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ryan. It's been my pleasure. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. That was Arthur Goldhammer. Now, the Brazilian election in particular is a seminal moment for us here at The Intercept. Without the reporting in 2019 of my former colleague Glenn Greenwald and others at The Intercept Brazil, Lula would quite likely still be in prison. Instead, he's potentially on his way back to the presidency. Now, to talk about Sunday's vote, I'm joined now by Sabrina Fernandez. Sabrina, welcome to Deconstructed. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for having me. For sure. Uh, so Sabrina, Sabrina is a Brazilian sociologist. She's an activist. Uh, so just just to kind of set the the stage for listeners here, who are you supporting in this presidential campaign, and, and kind of what's what's your what's your background in, in Brazilian politics been? Yes, I am one of those Marxists who are with Lula. <laughs> so we have decided that this is a very particular situation where even though we have been critical of Lula's policies in the past, something that we consider to be class conciliation, uh, really working with capital and not really helping to uh, break through 
paradigms in Brazil around development and uh, the issues that we have with the capitalist class, we have been quite critical. We will understand that um, Lula is going to set some priorities straight in a new government, especially in terms of lifting people out of poverty again, fighting hunger and bringing back more ecological approaches as well. So we are uh, together with Lula. We're not, not all of the socialists in Brazil are with Lula right now, but the great majority of the socialists are with Lula. And for our American audience, let's sketch out his his career really briefly, and I'll, I'll give you the quick overview and you tell me like what I, what I missed. But as I understand it, you know, he really emerged as a union leader and a kind of unapologetic leftist when he br- burst onto the national scene, but was not able in in that incarnation, you know, to kind of get over the top in, into the into the presidency. And it was when he kind of began, I, I don't know what you would call it, moderating or compromising, you know, with some of the 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 some of the factions of of the elite that he was then able to pull together a governing coalition and you know while it, while in office overseeing one of the most rapid kind of bursts in uh, economic development for the, the, uh, a nation's poor probably anywhere in the world maybe outside say you know communist china in the, over the last uh, you know several decades but that move toward the middle or toward the center left you know alienated alienated someone on the left and so as he has reemerged out of prison, and I want to get back back to that, what did I miss, and what has it been that has been able to pull kind of the left back into uh, behind him again? Yeah, so the trajectory of Lula is quite interesting because he used to uh, speak a lot in terms of class antagonisms. Uh, that was his role as a union leader. That was quite important uh, for fighting the dictatorship way back then. Uh, he was persecuted by by the dictatorship as well. And when he started running after the dictatorship, when he started running for the presidency, his discourses ended up more moderate each time until you got to the point as well when the Workers' Party as well was, was more open to um, for example, accepting donations from from private entities and corporations. So things started changing. Uh, there were some schisms, or so like organizations leaving the Workers' Party. Uh, this led to the creation of uh, other uh, leftist parties in Brazil, for example, the PSTU and the PSOL. And PSOL, for example, has been quite... Um, the opposition to the PT for a while, but in the past years, primarily because of Bolsonaro, there's been more of a tighter relationship mm-hmm. between Pessoal and Lula. Pessoal earlier in the year decided not to launch its own presidential candidate, but stand with Lula from the beginning, but also contributing to Lula's program. What are their politics? Like light socialist or what? Yeah, uh, PSOL is something that we put as radical left uh, versus like a moderate left, like the Workers' Party would be. So it does have like a socialist perspective. But within the PSOL, this is quite a fragmented party. It is a small socialist party. So we're talking here about like between 200 and 250,000 members, if you count those who are registered and those who are not. But it is the biggest I say socialist party in Brazil because there are other ones with socialists in the name that I would have considered to be socialist. Um, but the thing with Pessoal is that for even uh, the part of Pessoal who was very, very critical Lula, who had been accusing the party to becoming more and more like the PT, so transforming itself and becoming more moderate, everyone is with Lula nowadays. Uh, different levels of critiques, but this understanding that the left 
wasn't able to produce another name. Mm-hmm. And this is something that was quite clear in 2018 already. So when Lula was in prison and he couldn't run against Bolsonaro, there were a lot of conversations in terms that Lula would have won. So let's say like in the US, people are talking about right. Bernie. So Bernie would have won, right? Yeah, yes. so like Bernie would have won and like Lula would have won. Lula would have won. Like we fought really hard to get Adaji into, you know, it's like the second round campaign was absolutely intense. We were in the streets talking to absolutely everyone. But some people didn't know who Adaji was and Lula besides... Uh, Lula is a person uh, that has been very criminalized. So he's associated with corruption and robbery and things like that. But he's also associated with the good times. Mm-hmm. And this campaign right now is really playing on this. Lula is associated with the good times when people could eat three meals a day. So Lula is associated with the time where kids could go to university and not, you know, and not be afraid of like asking questions and that people weren't facing as much political violence as people facing right now. So can you talk a little bit about the Lula in jail? Like, what did he go to jail for? And then and then let's talk a little bit about how he how he got out, because, you know, that 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 actually involves not my organization, but our sister organization in, in TI Brazil. And I'm sh- a guy who's you know very controversial here in the US, Glenn Greenwald, but I assume also controversial um, in Brazil and that entire investigation that ends up kind of what role did that play in his release and what were the charges that he was in for? Yeah, it's very important that you mention that because uh, there's been an approach by the far right of just saying that like you're going to elect this person who was in prison. He's like an ex-prisoner, like a former convict. <laughs> Lula is not a former convict because the charges were actually annulled in the end because the justice system found that the judge who was involved in the case and persecuting was not acting as a judge. He was acting as the prosecutor uh, himself. So he was uh, going after Lula from the beginning. The charges were very, very odd. So for example, uh, there was something related to accusing him of getting an apartment as a favor from a construction company. And this would be connected to some contracts of like mega projects and contracts related to Petrobras, a national oil company. So all of these things, but then Lula will be like, yes, but where's the signature in this contract, in this lease? Like, oh, there's no signatures. Like, yeah, so put that away. Mm-hmm. So there's like this very um, iconic moment from the interviews when, when the judge was getting Lula's testimony, when he just says, yeah, like, this is no evidence. There's no signature. Why are you showing this paper to me? And in the end, eventually, these ended up in courts and the, the conviction conviction got annulled, as well as a bunch of other judicial processes that were uh, that Lula was being charged with, but he hadn't been properly judged yet. And the Lava Jato investigation, which is this investigation by this judge, so it's called Car Wash investigation, ended up being uh, under the scrutiny by the public, partly because of these access to materials by the Intercept Brazil showing, and we call this Vaza Jato, so that would be like the leaked mm-hmm. car wash uh, situation. So they were like, we had telegram mm-hmm. conversations between the judge and the persecuting uh, the prosecuting team. Uh, and by doing this, like it, we actually got to connect things that we already knew. So we, we had proper evidence that they were colluding. Uh, so there were like this collusion was a collusion to put Lula away ahead of the elections so he couldn't run. So this is quite key. And at the time, for example, Glenn um, received 
a, a crazy amount of death threats. Mm -hmm. uh, we actually had like a big event together in July 2019. So like shortly before the pandemic and like there, there had to be like a security detail because that there, there were like Bolsonaristas coming together just to, to threaten him and like stop him from talking. So uh, he's become like one of the, the figures in, in denouncing this process. But in the end, we also know this is quite connected, for example, to the power of social movements, for example, who were camping in front of Lula's prison in, in Paraná. This is important. So it's not just the lawfare approach of this. There was a lot of social movement support. This was also a little bit, bit controversial every now and then because, for example, we have like the Women's March for International Women's Day and a lot of people wanted to turn that into a free Lula march. Mm -hmm. So there was always some infighting within the left, like how much attention we give to this because, yes, this is important. You know, fighting for Lula is also fighting for democracy, but it can't be just fighting for Lula. But in the end, without the social movements, I don't think the impact of Azajata would have been as great as it was. So Lula gets freed. Uh, w when did it when did it become clear, or was it always clear that he was going to be so dominant versus Bolsonaro? And what's your what's your expectation going into Sunday? I think from the beginning it was like we it was so clear that we knew in 2018 that Lula Lula was mm -hmm. the the best. Like if he were free, yes, yeah. it would have made all of the difference. So as soon as we knew that he was apt to run again, and like Lula, he got uh, released. Uh, shortly before the pandemic and there were already people in the street super happy about it and it, it, we already got into campaign mode so it was about what do we do before then and one of the big challenges within the brazilian left was well do we keep pushing to get rid of bolsonaro or we wait for the elections and this is quite the conundrum in brazil because we do know that there was some level of demobilization within the left saying yeah like we've tried to impeach bolsonaro this is not working so let's just you know uh keep the opposition going, fighting in Congress, trying to stop some of these bills that are being proposed by the Bolsonaristas. But no, we're going to have Lula in 2022 and then we're going to get a new president. And in the end, that's it. Like we weren't able to pull big mobilization efforts to get Bolsonaro out. It's just not it's not the fault only of the left. Like the right wing has a lot of merit here. Um, they control huge chunks of social media threads and chains and bots. And they've maintained quite the hegemony of the discourse. But the left itself has had a lot of trouble in terms of mobilizing because we weren't able to mobilize against the coup in 2016 as well. So it's been quite the issue. And now uh, what we understand is that as soon as the pollings began, like Lula was already in first place. Mm -hmm. It was never uh, Bolsonaro uh, in first place and Lula trying to catch up. So Bolsonaro has been in, uh, the, in second place ever since. Although Bolsonaro has been claiming in his own networks that if he doesn't win this Sunday, October 2nd, uh, in the first round with a 60% margin, then it's probably something fraudulent, something off is happening. So he's throwing that in the ring right now and just trying to claim that, you know, the, uh, Lula, the, the polling is wrong. The polling is wrong. Hmm. Lula is not going to win. I'm the rightful winner. So in this same episode, we're also talking separately about the Italian election re that that just came, that just came off, and in particular about the fight between kind of the far right and the center left and the left for the for the votes of the working class in the Italian election. Uh, the the right won the working class by something like three to one by appealing you know directly to kind of very cultural issues. 
so where is the where is the where is the working class in Brazil um, breaking down in in this election? Yes, uh, this has been a big concern uh, because we know that a lot of the working class was with Bolsonaro uh, in 2018 because of moral panics. So we have like this conservative side of fundamentalist evangelicals and these evangelical leaders who can actually gather immense kind of crowds, pastors telling people in the in church like who should they be voting for. They were able to elect not only Bolsonaro but a lot of uh, conservative people into Congress as well. So this has been an issue. And right away there were a lot of people just saying, well, "Yes, wow, there are a lot more fascists in Brazil than we thought of," and this is such uh, such an awful and complete wrong uh, understanding of what's going on because it's not a bunch of fascist uh, workers. It's a lot of people who have felt um, very abandoned through the, the economic crisis in Brazil and have been fed a lot of information that's depoliticized and very anti-communist information as well. Um, this thing around, you know, being afraid of gender ideology and the destruction of the family and our children very very strong so some some things that we do find parallels with other parts of the world so we find parallels with this in europe in the us in latin america in general this was quite strong but also what we know right now is that like working class people are migrating back to lula uh based on the understanding that the pandemic was hard and bolsonaro was even uh, worse than they expected during the pandemic we had the second highest uh, death toll of the pandemic. This is par partially because Bolsonaro didn't want to implement proper social distancing measures and Bolsonaro uh, didn't really want to give people financial support until Congress passed it along and then Bolsonaro is trying to claim credit for the social support during the pandemic. Also, Bolsonaro delayed the, vac the vaccination of the people. So these, these led to him losing a lot in the within the working class, although we like we understand that Bolsonaro has something like like a, a about like a thirty percent of the electoral kind of loyal mm -hmm. kind of base, and uh, but it's not enough to win. But it, it is enough to leave us with a lot of concerns regarding this state of political violence in Brazil. It's 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 heightening. It's gotten worse uh, over the past two months and the past two weeks like lots of cases like uh, like horror stories really and the fact that if uh, if lula wins in the first round or in the second round this political violence is not going to go away magically like we need to do something about this and so aside from having an iconic figure like uh like lula what can the left around the world kind of learn from what brazil has what the brazilian left has done to fight back against Bolsonaro and to pull some of that working class support away from him and back towards left parties. Yes, but I, I would think that actually we shouldn't be learning that much from having an iconic figure like Lula because it means that we're kind of stuck mm -hmm. on having an iconic figure come and save us every time. And this has been one of the problems. Lula is not going to stick around forever and Lula is also full of contradictions and we cannot detach ourselves from a historical analysis of, you know, uh, a lot of the people who are in power today with Bolsonaro, they were also with the Lula governments. And Lula is running on a very broad coalition. So here, what, what we understand is that, like, I think one of the biggest lessons is that um, the left started positioning itself again as, you know, like, we are uh, the antagonists of this guy who's sitting right there. So, like, playing on this antagonism was very important. 
but they haven't like the left hasn't done so as much in terms of class antagonism so this is going to be one of the weaknesses as we go along like with lula winning and i'm hoping he will he will win uh, with lula winning this is going to be a weakness because this is such a broad coalition that lula is not going to be able to please everyone so everyone is just betting that well he's a very uh, articulate very skilled politician so he'll be able to work around that reach some level of consensus but we know where the where the uh, class power rests in Brazil right now and it, it is still with agribusiness it is still with banks but he would, they will just have to make some concessions because Lula is going to try to stop privatization efforts and he's going to put a lot of money back into um, social policy through public investment so it's about negotiating these kind of things and what we understand is that getting Bolsonaro out is by no means getting Bolsonarismo out we don't know if we should be calling this Bolsonarismo after Bolsonaro, uh, but it is definitely what we could maybe understand as the alt-right, right? This new right mm-hmm. that was formed, and we talk about this in Argentina, we talk about this in the U.S. as well. Um, there are connections between them. They have like their YouTubers, they have their media personalities. These people are connected internationally, so it's not just a parallels. They talk to each other, and we know that this Brazilian alt-right is not going to go away just because Bolsonaro got defeated at the election. I think the rest of the world is going to have to pay a lot, a lot of attention to Brazil uh, to see if we can actually pull it off, you know, actually burying mm-hmm. Bolsonarismo and, you know, telling telling the, the rest of the country that we're not going to allow for these alt-right operations in the country. And a Brazilian colleague of mine sent me an interview that he said was kind of emblematic of uh, Lula's approach and kind of outreach to the working class. And it's this it's this. Uh, interview that he did with a guy named Ratino, which I think means like little rat or something. Yes, Ratino, yes, little <laughs> rat. It, it, it's uh, one of those media personalities, but this is an old school media personality from Brazil, right wing guy, uh, and he has like a popular TV show. Yeah, is is there an equivalent? Is he is he like a Fox News? Like, oh, I, I don't know if you watch Fox News. Like, but so he's a so he's a very popular right wing personality in in Brazil, and Lula went kind of into the lion's den. Yes. Eu quero saber uma coisa, Lula, aquela garrafinha, aquela é água que tem lá? Ou tem uma, ca, uma caixa assim? Qual garrafinha? Aquela que você faz com isso, que eu vejo você tomando. Não, aquilo é água. Tem certeza? É água, é água, é água. Was it unusual that he would appear there? Yeah, what's interesting here is that, let's say, like, uh, Hachinho would be a Fox News kind of personality, but as if he was hosting Jeopardy. <laughs> okay. So okay. that that would be the yeah. parallel. So like, it's a gotcha. very right wing guy, but he, he his TV show is not a political TV show. Okay. Um, but he has become a political personality on the right through the past years because he helped to propel Bolsonaro, Bolsonarismo. Uh, his family is involved in right wing politics as well in Brazil. Hatinho himself is part of uh, is part of this. But he he was promoting these interviews with candidates and. Um, because like the Lula is not attending every debate, he he's given preference to uh, to going to some of these um, TV shows, and Hachinho has been interviewing many of them, and we were kind of expecting a little bit more confrontation actually between Hachinho and Lula, uh, but in the end it was all smiles, and then now it depends on how you interpret this. Like a lot of people interpreted this as a sign that Lula is actually so skilled that he turned Hachinho around. Uh, he was able to get a lot of laughs from the crowd. It shows that he's very charismatic, popular leader. Uh, and like he was able, and one of the big tropes that Lula has employed 
since forever, is that like back in the day when I was president, everyone made more gains. So like everyone earned more. So the working class, but also agribusiness, also the banks, you know, life was great for everyone. So he threw that at Hachin, like even you made more money when I was president. And Hachin was like, yes, yes. That's true. And then he winks and there like there was a little bit of a game. So if you if you uh, think in terms of like the campaign strategy, it makes a lot of sense because a lot of the working class, um, you know, they watch Hachinho and they've been fed a lot of right wing conservative things from Hachinho. And seeing Hachinho kind of bow down to Lula is a good sign in terms of the campaign. But it is also if you're coming from a different political analysis of what comes next. It gets us in that, you know, a worrisome stage of thinking of class conciliation and Lola moderating, uh, uh, moderating uh, his speech and his politics just to make sure that you can ensure that he gets four years of government. And tell me a little bit about uh, Ciro Gomez, who was a who was a candidate who I think the left had some hope in in the in the very beginning. And I saw there was a recent poll that found that a, a, a huge chunk of his what little support that he has at this point are actually right-wing voters, which I think goes to the the very the super confusing times um, that that we live in. But so, like, who is who is Ciro Gomez, and what happened with with his campaign? Well, the interesting thing is that uh, Ciro was part of the PT base uh, in the past. He's been a part of many different parties. So, for the audience who's not familiar with Brazilian party politics, we have over thirty parties in Brazil. <laughs> Uh, each one can run a presidential candidate. So we have lots of pres- presidential candidates right now. And Ciro Gomes kind of broke away from the from the PT and Lula in the past. And he really wanted to be president. So he has been running for president for a while. And the big difference is what happened in 2018. Because the idea was that Bolsonaro is representing the right. If Lula can't run, Ciro wanted to be the person on the big leftist ticket. Not in the Workers' Party with the PDT, which is um, more uh, another labor party in Brazil, but is I would consider it to be to the right of the PT. Mm-hmm. It, uh, it is a traditional labor party, but it doesn't have the same connection to unions and, and, and social movements at the same level that the PT does. And within the PDT, we have people more on the left, and we even have charges that there are people within the PDT that are sort of infiltrated as like neo-fascists. So like there's this organization called Nova Resistance. So there, there's worry about this, of these neo-fascists infiltrating the PDT. And what happened since 2018 is that because um, the PT didn't want Ciro, not even as VP, uh, though I, I think Ciro wouldn't take it as VP, he wanted to be the main name in the ticket. Mm-hmm. Ciro kept running as like the third option. So like you, you don't have to go with the PT, you can come with me. And when we went into the second round in 2018, it was uh, Haddad with the PT versus Bolsonaro. Ciro decided not to campaign against Bolsonaro. Uh-huh. So he, 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 like he, he could have chosen like, I'm not going to campaign with the PT, but I can, uh, can campaign against Bolsonaro. What happens is Ciro even left the country. Right. So there's a running joke nowadays that he's just going to go to Paris afterwards anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and ever since we have found that he's been playing a lot into that trope of, you know, um, Bolsonaro and Lula are one in the same. You know, is the pot calling the kettle black and like, I'm the true alternative. And associating Lula with like saying that Lula is a convict, that Lula Lula is corrupt. So he ended up getting 
the support of uh, uh, portion of the electorate who's very anti-leftist and anti-communist, anti-Lula, anti-PT, uh, but don't want to be with Bolsonaro because Bolsonaro is so bad. So Ciro gathered those people, but this was a strategy that failed uh, immensely for Ciro because now he's, uh, he's alienated himself from people who voted for him in 2018, saying that I regret voting for him so much because when he needs to have a proper stance on what matters in terms of like a, a, a democratic fight in Brazil, um, Ciro is choosing to, you know, be smiley towards Bolsonaro in the d debates and uh, attacking more Lula than attacking Bolsonaro and things like that. Is it, what are the main issues that the campaign is being uh, waged over? I would say that the main thing uh, is actually the issue around hunger and purchasing power. So the Brazilian working class uh, has had its living standards deteriorate over the past years. Access to, to public services has worsened because there's been a lot of cuts. So one of the things that we need to understand key to the election here is the austerity measures that were uh, implemented right after the coup against Yuma Rousseff, so by the Tamar government and that the Bolsonaro helped to deepen these measures. So this really cut social spending and we have issues with, you know, like the, the minimum wage in Brazil is uh, it's a, it's a wage that people can barely survive on it. We have um, over 180,000 people living in the streets in Brazil today. Um, half of the nation is facing some sort of food insecurity. So these are quite key issues. And Lula has been running on this saying, remember, when I was president, you know, it wasn't like this. It was better. Like I was fighting hunger. I was like Lula is really well known for his social policy. So this, being, this has been key. Uh, but also, interestingly, uh, we have the issue of the, um, of the Amazon. Mm -hmm and environmental concerns being brought to the forefront because Bolsonaro was so bad with this. So like really attacking attacking our biomes, uh, promoting violence against indigenous and traditional communities, promoting violence against landless workers. So this uh, is one of the key themes that Lula is talking about. Uh, he could be talking about this in a more advanced matter, like there are better things in his program than what he's been stating. He's very focused on saying how well his government did uh, in Copenhagen, you know, with like, we're going to have good climate policy or just saying that we're going to regenerate the Amazon. But these are not the only environmental concerns, but like we have concerns connected to how carbon credit schemes have made their way into, into Brazilian uh, institutions. We have concerns uh, that really have to do with uh, indigenous land settlement. So how much is Lula going to go uh, in terms of agrarian reform and indigenous land settlement? This is still not quite clear, though we know there's a push for him to actually have a proper indigenous ministry. Um, so we're going to see some, some advances with Lula there uh, on this matter. And I think this is why this is something that bothers Bolsonaro very much. Like Bolsonaro was just at the, the UN and in his uh, uh, statement there is always claiming that we didn't have this much deforestation. The data is lying. Well, but the data is, is quite clear. Like the level of ecocide is not, mm -hmm. is not contained only in the Amazon. We find this everywhere in Brazil. You often see stories saying that the the Amazon is is risking a kind of point of no return type of type of place where its ability to regenerate itself is is diminishing as it as it shrinks 
ever ever more. What is the general sense in Brazil? What the hope is for for maintaining that biome? Yeah, so like the we've had so much deforestation in the past years that we we think the the hydrological cycle is already not going to be the same. What concerns us is that it gets actually interrupted. So patterns around rain in the rainforest have changed already, and it has impacted other parts of the country. And this is a problem uh, in the whole of South America as well, because we know, for example, in Bolivia we're having a lot of Amazon fires. So Bolivia is the country um, that we should also be paying attention to right now because um, this is this is something that uh, the RCA government should be uh, a lot more keen and now we're talking about progressive government mm-hmm. dealing with this so we get into like these contradictions around the use of territory and the contradictions around land ownership and developmentalism in the region and when Lula says that we need to regenerate the Amazon this is something that's important here so if we're reaching a tipping point we need to implement measures to help the forest should try to reestablish a little bit of an equilibrium. So uh, there are a lot of conversations with environmentalists, with research institutes, with, with NGOs and the indigenous communities on what to do about this. So the commitment has to be not just fight deforestation to the point that we don't have new deforestation, but we also need reforestation. We need agroecological approaches. And we already know that uh, in terms of like the understanding of the Amazon as a carbon sink, right now is uh, it's a net emitter of carbon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this means something for the rest of the planet and this is why we talk about this biome more than we talk about the others even though all of the others are uh, currently endangered as as we've talked about on this show before in, in speaking of brazil in in 2020 the bolivian right was planning a coup in the wake of that election uh, but their coup plans completely fell apart in the wake of kind of an overwhelming vote on behalf of mas morales's party and so i'm, I'm wondering what Bolsonaro's plans for clinging to power look like in the face of what could be an over, overwhelming vote? And and how clearly is he sending signals that he plans to stay in power no matter what? Yeah, he sends, like he does these live streams with uh, for his audience, very popular. And like he said a couple of times that you know what to do. Um, and by knowing what to do, we've seen already some glimpses of this in terms of the political violence. Like people are beating up pregnant women. Uh, They're beating up people for just saying they're going to vote for Lula. We've had cases of actual murders throughout the country. Uh, So this is something that we're concerned about. Whether this translates into a coup, there are other things to question here. One is the support of the armed forces. Uh, We're not quite clear uh, how much of the armed forces would support a coup attempt by Bolsonaro. He's had a very strong relationship with the army. He's had, uh, he has a lot of military uh, within the government right now, within the civilian parts of the government right now. So like there are like over 6,000 civilian posts occupied by military personnel. Uh, And we we know that uh, Bolsonaro like is running, like his running mate, Braganeto, is from the military as well. But there's been schisms in the military, um, like in the army and in, in, uh, in the air force and the navy in the past years because of Bolsonaro be, being really hard to control, being kind of unpredictable. So this is something to pay attention to. And the other thing is that things changed when Biden got elected. So without the, this direct support from Trump, Bolsonaro felt a little bit abandoned. Uh, he actually shifted strategies toward, towards Biden. So in the beginning, uh, after the election, he still claimed that, you know, the, the, 
the election in the U.S. was fraudulent, that Trump <laughs> was the rightful owner, he applauded the efforts at the, the invasion of the Capitol, he did all of that. Later on, so more like this year, now 2022, there's been an attempt to um, become uh, a little closer to the Biden administration. So these attempts at proximity, but there's been like very clear signals from the Biden administration that we're going to respect the, the results of the election. And I think that after, after what happened in Bolivia with them actually being able to revert the coup that was supported by the US, mm-hmm. uh, it shows that once you start like turning the tide of this like, Perhaps people have been calling it like a pink tide 2.0, new pink tide in, in Latin America with these progressive governments. Once you turn the tide, it's harder to have some uh, uh, foreign intervention. Mm-hmm. So, well, Bolsonaro can try anything. So we're, we're paying attention to this. I don't think people should just celebrate just yet because Lula is doing well in the polling, especially because if we go into a second round, October is going to be a critical month in Brazil, and uh, Bolsonaro has enough support to create havoc. Right. Whether that havoc can be turned into a coup, and like a coup attempt, and this coup attempt is actually successful, this is another question. Well, well Sabrina, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Ryan. Like, the, I, I hope that the audience can get like a good feel of what's happening in Brazil through the questions you asked in this discussion today. I think so. This was really helpful. That was Sabrina Fernandez, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by William Stanton. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Roger Hodge is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference and might even lead to fewer emails from our fundraising team. If you enjoy this podcast, be sure to also check out Intercepted, as well as Murderville, which is now in its second season. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please go leave us a rating or a review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you soon. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.